I want to talk about two different ideas. One is this kind of long-run perspective uh, that I'll be explaining in a moment. And two is this, uh, how it can help with the idea of strategic cause selection. Um, so this is like a term that gets thrown around in effective altruism circles. And the thought is that, you know, there are all these different ways of doing good in the world. And... Um, one thing that is rarely done, but seems like it would be good if more people did it, would be if we sort of dispassionately considered uh, many different ways of doing good and tried to evaluate how much we could accomplish if we did good in these different ways, and then we tried to choose the ones that we thought would do the most good. Um, so this is strategic cause selection is, is uh, this being applied uh, at the level of a cause, where you can think of a cause as some cluster of related interventions where uh, having expertise in one of them uh, tends to lead to having expertise in related ones. So, for example, you might think that if you knew more about, you know, some programs in U.S. education, it'd be, it would put you in a better position to evaluate other programs in U.S. education. Or if you were working in different interventions that you could do to deal with climate change, it would help you um, to understand uh, other ones better. So this is kind of a relevant thing for, uh, like, a philanthropist who would be choosing, like, maybe areas that they want to... Uh, invest in, um, or it'd be a relevant thing for maybe a young person who's choosing an industry. Uh, maybe they're choosing between different scientific uh, paths they could go on. They want to choose which PhD program they could do uh, to, you know, get the skills that will be relevant in the long run. Um, so it's something that uh, GiveWell is doing on a big level right now with their project of GiveWell Labs, where they're trying to consider which program areas to help advise philanthropists to get into. Um, and you, you could think of some things like Copenhagen Consensus doing this. It's something that is uh, starting to happen more at the Center for Effective Altruism with the Global Priorities Project. Okay. So now I want to discuss this argument that I'll call the long-run argument. It's, uh, it's very much related to like, Nick Bostrom's idea of astronomical waste. Um, but uh, I want to think about the, I want to go through this argument and think about how much it could help us with the project of strategic cause selection. Okay. Um, so I'm going like, to go through this argument in a lot more detail, but it's like this is a, this is a, a sketch. Uh, of an argument that's put together in a way that looks valid to me anyway and, uh, and uh, has some potentially important implications for how we could make decisions about uh, selecting these, these uh, causes for this project of strategic cause selection. So I'll go through this more in a minute. But the, the plan is going to be to go through that argument. Um, it's going to be a kind of in incomplete explanation that I could give like a whole talk about, and indeed I wrote like a dissertation about it. This is, uh, uh, but uh, I think the for, for people who haven't heard the argument, um, the goal will be to get you to think uh, there's an argument here that might work if I thought about it a bit more, um, and it seems like you know there are these assumptions, normative and empirical, some of them speculative, which. If you put it all together, would yield a potentially interesting conclusion. Um, so I, just, I want to get some kind of plausibility for that going there. Um, and then I want to talk about two different ideas about what this type of perspective would imply. So, um, so this, I, this is to give to give it kind of intuitively. The, this long run argument is saying. Civilization. The first idea is that civilization has like a lot of potential for the distant future. So although we don't normally think about it, 
it could be the case that um, humanity or our descendants could survive for a very long time. There could be quite a lot of us in the distant future, um, and things could get a lot better in various ways. And the second idea is that there are some things we could do today which would have a non-negligible effect on the long-run character of that civilization. So I'm going to go into examples in a little bit. But you could imagine that uh, you know, whether there are many people in the distant future or not might depend on what choices we make, um, or what their lives are like might depend on what choices we make. And then the third idea is that if those two things are true, um, then the future potential is so large that um, that how much good we can accomplish, say with like our lives or investing in large projects, um, will be almost entirely a function of how we're changing that long-term potential. So it's kind of a it's an unusual idea, but that's the sort of that's the sort of thought that I want to put in here, and and I want to say, okay, why might you think that? And if you believed it, how might it affect your views about? Uh, you know, picking causes or areas to focus on um, and what we might think are, think are the most important things. So when people have discussed these, these types of ideas, um, there's two types of perspectives that, uh, that on what this kind of long-run view might favor that I want to talk about in the talk. So one of these perspectives is that... Um, having faster economic growth or having higher rates of innovation or something like that is going to affect many future generations in a big way, and that's the, that's the primary lever for affecting the distant future. Another kind of idea is that there are certain catastrophic events which uh, could sort of put us on a worse trajectory or wipe us out or something like that, and what really matters is that we minimize the probability of those types of catastrophic events. So... Um, and I'll, I'll put names to people who have views like this in a minute and go through them in a little bit more detail. But that's sort of where this is all going. And I'm going to kind of critique and qualify both of those perspectives. Okay. So, a little bit more on this like long-run argument and where it comes from. Uh, Nick Bostrom, who's going to be talking after me, has made the most similar arguments, and I think he's sort of uh, done the most to kind of clarify this perspective. On his view, uh, minimizing existential risk, which I'll talk about in a minute, is, uh, is the thing that matters most from this type of long-run perspective, um, where an existential risk is some kind of event which, if it happened, would uh, drastically curtail humanity's long-term potential. Um, my view is slightly broader than that, in, in that I think there are other potential persistent changes to the long-term character of civilization that could be important to consider as well. Um, Derek Parfit has argued for giving much greater weight to the interests of future generations. Um, this is a topic he highlighted at the end of Reasons and Persons, and it's a topic he also highlighted uh, at the end of Volume 2 of On What Matters, where he said that um, avoiding end ending human history is what now matters most, in large part because of humanity's great long-term potential. So there's, uh, there's some definite overlap with, with what he's saying there. Um, and for the, for the sort of faster innovation, economic growth view, I think I could point to a very, various economists. If I, if I knew more economics, I could probably point to more of them. But I'll, I'll point to a couple of them and, and try to beat up on them a little bit. Um, but uh, we'll get into that in a second. 
Um, let me just say a few things about qualifications, about what I mean and what I'm talking about. This will be my, most relevant to philosophically minded people in the audience, philosophers and stuff. So when I'm talking about good and better and best, I'm really talking about uh, those ideas from a sort of consequentialist perspective. So in terms of good and bad outcomes, I'm not talking about things like moral virtue um, or deontological type considerations. I don't think that makes the issue overly narrow because I think, as some other people have said, uh, consequences do matter, and uh, that's something that should matter from a variety of moral perspectives. So, uh, Another th thing is when I talk about civilization or humanity and these really long timescales, you might think, like, does he think that like, human, like, homo sapiens will be around for a really long time or something like that? I just mean like our descendants, whatever that those might be. It could be other kinds of intelligent life or different species or something like that, as long as they're valuable. That's, that's what I'm talking about. Um, and the focus here is on expected good. So it could be that it could be that we can't really affect the long-term future, or surprisingly, our future is going to be cut short uh, in a way that we can't do anything about, or something like that. But I'm talking about expected consequences, and uh, so that makes some of those things a bit more tractable. Another thing is, when I make this argument and I say how much expected good we accomplish is almost entirely a function of our expected effects on how well our civilization realizes long-term potential, I don't mean to suggest that that's what we should always be thinking about when we're deciding what to do. So just as some uh, trader might uh, have much better returns by relying on a simple set of heuristics rather than calculating explicitly the expected value of every trade they do. Um, it could well be that, and indeed I think it is true, that uh, this is not the kind of thing that we should be thinking about when we're making all of our decisions. And I think when you're comparing outcomes within a, within a cause, when, where you have things that are quite similar to each other, like a couple of global health interventions or something like that, this long-run perspective has much less that it might be able to offer. Um, but if you're thinking about very different things, like whether you wanted to contribute to some area of scientific research or animal welfare projects or global catastrophic risks or something like that, I think um, there's much more potential um, for this. So why don't I'd like to uh, dive in on this first premise and uh, talk about why you might believe that um, we might have quite a lot of potential in the distant future. So... I find it helpful to think about just a, think about, it, since we're think, trying to go up so far forward into the future, think about a, a bit back into the past. So we've had animals around with nervous systems for hundreds of millions of years. We've had primates for tens of millions of years, hominids for millions of years. We've had modern agriculture um, for uh, over 10,000 years. And, you know, <coughs> I think it's reasonable to think about those types of timescales going forward for similar things for us. So, um, and I think the upper bound uh, of just of an Earth-based civilization is, it should be kept in mind as well, where it's hundreds of millions of years or close to a billion years um, that the planet's likely to remain habitable. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of time to play around with. Um, one thing I'm just going to say but not really defend or talk about very much is I also, I also think, and you know, if you wanted to talk more about that, what I would recommend you do is like ask Nick, Bo Nick Bostrom what is around. But it does, 
It does seem plausible that advances in technologies like artificial intelligence or brain emulation could greatly increase uh, the number of potential people that we could have. Um, I want to talk about one other, so another reason you might think that there's a lot of future potential out there. Uh, unusual idea, but sci-fi, space colonization, uh, is that something we'll ever be able to do? I looked into it a little bit, and uh, I think it's a reasonable possibility. I think it would be a mistake to say that we know that you're not going to be able to do that. Um, and I think it would probably also be a mistake to say that we know we'll be able to, and I think there's a chance either way. But if you want some rough sense of like what's the science state of scientific opinion on that question, it seemed like the right first pass. It looks like people who work at NASA or something like that generally say, we don't really know. Um, I looked up a big report talking about rationales for um, space exploration research and development and programs, and they had a couple pages related to the question, and that was mostly what they said. They said, maybe we'll have it, maybe we won't. We should keep working on it because it's a possibility, and it'd be great if we did. Um, there are people who work on space, on like space colonization specifically, and there's obviously a selection effect to consider there, but... Uh, all of the scientific articles, pretty much all the scientific articles I found on this topic were book-length treatments were written by people who thought, yeah, you could probably do this eventually. And I'm not talking about like doing this like soon. So we're taking a very long-run perspective here. Uh, what, what might we be able to do eventually? And uh, there aren't a lot of convincing academic... There aren't really any academic critics who are publishing on this topic saying you can't do it. And you mostly find things like journalists and blog posts... Uh, that have arguments which are uh, pretty adequately addressed in, in the uh, main papers on this topic. So anyway, the point about this, why I talk about the space colonization, well, it could drastically increase the number of people that there could be in the distant future. Um, and it could also greatly increase how long we could be around. So although we're limited to some hundreds of millions of years on Earth, um, there are a lot of stars that will be burning for hundreds of billions of years, and uh, there's, a, there's quite a lot more potential people there. So when I put all of these considerations together, um, it seems to me that unless we soon go extinct, there's a reasonable chance that future people will outnumber the current generation by many orders of magnitude, and almost all of the people that we might be in a position to help or affect uh, are not yet alive. So... So if you wanted to just play around with this a little bit, I made a table. Um, you could think about different sizes of population that we might have and how long people might be around, and then think about how many years of life there would be. So the E is uh, 10 to the, you know, so 10 to the 16, 10 to the 18, and so on. But so if you thought we had, a, you could think about different possibilities. Do we have another couple hundred years, just about the time since we had an industrial revolution? Might we be around for 10,000 years, about the time since um, we had... Uh, switch to agriculture? Might we be around for a couple hundred thousand years, about as long as we've been around so far? Um, and then some of these other timescales that I brought up earlier. Um, but I think what you get, if you, if you just look at most of these numbers, uh, most of these combinations, all of which I think are kind of reasonable, <laughs> um, given different sets of assumptions that I described earlier, um, you could get you could get that 
the future generations, uh, future people are outnumbering present people by very many orders of magnitude. And if we could improve the future by a very small fraction, maybe by increasing the chance that it ever develops in this big way or changing what it is like, um, even by like a millionth or a billionth or a trillionth, it looks like that would have a larger effect um, in terms than improving the present even by very ambitious uh, multiples. Um, now, when I make that claim, I'm not talking about the long-run effects of improving the present. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But I do think uh, it gives a bit of a different perspective. I think uh, if you buy this thought, you start thinking, um, well, in terms of number of people that I'm going to affect, uh, almost, all of the number of, almost all of the people that I'm going to affect by doing something in the short run are these future people. Um, if it has any, if it has any connection with them. Okay, so that's that's my first premise. It's a review of that. Um, again, I'm just hoping that I've said enough that you can think, yeah, maybe that would be true. And if you wanted to go and investigate it in more detail, you could. Um, second premise: This is uh, the thought that we can actually do something to affect these future generations. So can we? Um, I think the thing that most people think about uh, when they think about future generations are environmental issues, and I think that makes sense because uh, this is sort of the best established way of affecting the distant future. So um, it's natural to think about how climate change could affect future generations. Um, I think an example that's very clear is that's, that it's going to affect uh, the future for, mil for many millions of years. Um, is the effect of humans on the biosphere in terms of ma the mass extinction event that's going on right now. So there have been five mass extinction events in the history of the planet where a significant fraction of the species alive uh, went extinct in relatively short periods of time. And we're in the sixth one right now uh, as a result of humans growing <laughs> and spreading throughout the biosphere. And we can see significant uh, consequences uh, in which animals are around and what the biosphere is like uh, on the basis of these mass extinction events of the past. So the one that most people know about is uh, asteroid hitting the Earth and wiping out the dinosaurs, and uh, we, you know, that affects the long-term composition of uh, the planet. And uh, so humans are all the time causing various species to go extinct, and these characteristic duration that one of these species would be around is for millions of years. So. Um, <laughs> The species, I think the species extinction um, probably isn't the like, best lever for thinking about the distant future, but I do think um, it's a very clear example for, for someone who thinks uh, we just can't do anything to, that will, will matter to all of these future people. Um, another category are the catastrophic events maybe resulting in human extinction, uh, not either immediately or after some kind of social collapse of infrastructure and so on. Um, so one that obviously gets talked about a lot are nuclear war. Um, it's obviously less of an issue today than it was in the past, but there's a, there's a scenario there, and, and um, that could become more of an issue in the future than it is right now. Um, there are still asteroids out there. Most of them have been tracked, but there's another scenario there. Um, and we can imagine other developments in the future, such as new bioweapons or something like that, which uh, could have potentially scarier consequences. Um, 
Another kind of category that I think is harder to think about, but potentially very important, um, are certain types of long-term cultural or technological path dependence. So there can be features of the long-term character of civilization that might depend on conditions in the distant past. So um, a very intuitive example of something like this is the development of major world religions. So you have these events that happened thousands of years ago, and it seems like they really could have happened in very different ways than they actually did. And uh, we see those effects still in the world today, and perhaps there could be kind of cultural effects that would last, uh, last much longer. Um, an example that seems very important and uh, I think is interesting to think about is whether a lot of the nice institutions that we have today, like liberal democracies and having a scientific culture, um, you know, those things might have been contingent. They might not have been the kinds of things that just inevitably, de inevitably develop. Um, and I think when you start thinking about that, it raises the idea that other very important institutions uh, might be contingent as well. Um, so it could be that things we do have, have some kind of long-run consequences that way. Another kind of interesting example, which if you've heard about, is I'll just mention, if you haven't, I'm not going to go into, but there are, there are uh, a decent number of people who are now thinking that developments in advanced artificial intelligence, the conditions under which that's developed, the ways in which it is developed, could change the long-term character of civilization. Um, Nick Bostrom has a new book about that, which I would recommend reading if that's a topic that is interesting to you. Um, you could also think about things like self-reinforcing inequalities or, of resources or power. Um, th that's a type of thing that I think is potentially a real dynamic um, and maybe worth thinking about. Um, another big category here is technological development. I have a question mark on this because I, you know, I think I, I think this isn't as straightforward as uh, as you might think it is, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but I, I thought I'd put it in the list because a lot of people would have it there. And then, of course, you know, I've talked about things that might sort of fairly predictably or directly affect the long-term future. I, you can kind of see how it would happen. I also think there's lots of potentially important indirect effects. Um, so, and I think a lot of these things are connected with each other. So if you had, one, if you had a global catastrophic event, even if it was, wasn't one that sort of wiped us out, I think um, it's reasonable to believe that that could have some significant consequences on our culture or the way we do governance or um, what our economic growth looks like. And I think that you know, things like improvements in education or governance quality could affect how well our institutions handle uh, global catastrophic risks or other events on this list that might be affecting the distant future. Um, and I think uh, there's various reasons to think that uh, more economic prosperity would have consequences for some of these other factors as well. Okay, so that's some, some reasons to think. I've, I've identified some areas uh, where you can imagine that you might be able to do something to affect those things that might be, uh, it's easier to see how those could affect the long-run future, at least, than a lot of other stuff. Now I'm going to talk a little bit, and it's just going to be a little bit, about why, if you accept that, you might believe my conclusion that how much good we're going to accomplish is mainly a function of uh, these types of consequences on the long-term future. 
Um, so just the simple-minded thought is that, you know, how important something is scales with the number of people that, affect, that it affects and how much it affects them. Um, and I think that's mostly where this is coming from. So if I'm affecting a really big thing, that should be really important. Um, and that's, that's really where most of this comes from. I'm going to say a little bit about that. And I'm sorry for the philosophers if you were hoping to hear a lot of moral philosophy. It's actually not going to be in this talk. Um, I, but I, I did write a dissertation about this, and you could read it if, if you were interested. Um, I would like to just skate over and just let you know that I've like thought about a couple of, of objections to this. Um, so one of them is uh, discount rates. Um, expect to hear from some economists about this, but uh, uh, it's clear that if you exponentially discounted the future, so you said, you know, uh, if something happens each year, things that happen each year in the future, we're going to treat them as like 3% less important. That, that grows after, after a while, and uh, you're not going to get this type of dominant effect of the distant future if you had that view. Um, I think people like Derek Parfit and John Broom have done a very nice job explaining why we shouldn't have uh, this type of discounting. Um, I think there are some other aspects of discounting that are more instrumental, like these opportunity cost arguments, which I'm going to say a little bit about. Um, not directly, but I'm going to say some things which you could see how they, they are relevant to it. Um, another kind of view, and this is, the, this is like the philosopher objection to, to, to this thought. Um, we, had, we heard other people bring up these person-affecting views, which is roughly this view that we care about making people happy and not really about making happy people. Um, you might think that ensuring that there are a lot of future generations is kind of like making happy people. And if you didn't think creating extra happy people was important, you might think making sure there are all these future generations isn't important. Um, one thing I want to say, so just a couple quick things about these person-affecting views and why I don't find this a very compelling cr critique. Um, for various reasons, I don't like person-affecting views, and I've like written a chapter about that in my dissertation, but, you know... First of all, I think most people's view is not that, you know, it just wouldn't matter if there weren't all these future generations. Um, and I think that is what you get to a first pass with these kinds of person-affecting views. There's some, there's, some, there's some other arguments you say, well, they're important to, other, to us. They're important to the people alive, whether we have all these future generations. But I find that a, a pretty inadequate explanation of why we care about the future. Um, a second thing is, I'm not just talking about the extinction events, right? So I am also including these things that could change the long-term character of civilization. And, uh, you know, classic objection to the person-affecting views, which they do efforts to get around, is that on these types of views, it seems like you might not end up caring about, uh, about whether... You know, we have a future that has a lot of prosperity or has a moderate amount of prosperity um, because of the non-identity problem. If this means nothing to you, just ignore it for now. Um, you're probably not confused about it. Uh, but um, I do think, you know, if you have these kinds of person-affecting views and you apply it here to object to me that, like, it doesn't matter if we improve the long-run character of civilization, you're using the view in the area where everyone thinks it's least plausible. So um, I think that's pretty, pretty hard to defend. 
Anyway, um, so that's that's my that's my explanation of this long run argument. And now what I want to do is talk about um, this thought that improvements in in economic growth or adding to the stock of useful knowledge um, is something that helps future generations in a very predictable and important way. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth in this, but so let me try and do my best to kind of say what I think is the best version of this. And the thing I'd say is that um, when we get new knowledge and innovation, it sticks around and it accumulates and it can be used by future generations and it helps them discover other useful knowledge sooner. Um, and when we get this new knowledge at a faster rate, it puts everyone ahead in terms, in terms of this uh, growth curve and in terms of what, how large our stock of useful knowledge is. And being ahead on that curve improves quality of life. We're a lot better off than we were a couple hundred years ago, and that's largely because of this great increase in the stock of useful technical knowledge that we have. So you might think, by analogy, that if we add to this stock of useful knowledge more quickly or do more of it, that there'll be information that can be used by um, all future generations. And that would be a very predictable way, you might think, of improving the long-run character of civilization because I've just, got, I've just given them this thing that they all get a benefit from now. And it's this thing that's happening all the time and is, one, is known to already be one of the most important forces in the world. So maybe, maybe this is the thing that we should be thinking about if we have this long-run perspective. Um, so the person who I think comes closest to saying that, that I like know in detail, is Tyler Cowen. So Tyler Cowen's this economist at George Mason University. He's like an interesting guy. And he's, he's thought a lot about the long-term future. So he's got this paper... Uh, called Caring About the Distant Future, Why It Matters and What It Means, where he says, he defends this principle that um, in the very long run, what's going to matter most is that we maximize the sustainable rate of economic growth. And he's very much influenced, I think, by the types of arguments I'm talking about here. Um, another example, I have Paul Romer here saying that for a nation, the choices that determine whether income doubles with every generation or instead with every other generation dwarf all other economic policy concerns. So I think there's some people who, like, I think this is a natural view, and I think this is a, people, a view that some people hold. Um, my main objection to this view is that I think it relies on a model of the future that uh, sort of assumes exponential growth growing forward indefinitely, rather than a model uh, that follows something more like an S-curve. So now I'm just going to explain why I think this S-curve is more realistic. So you can see, if, if we had the S-curve, if we had the S-curve, then if we moved further, what would happen is uh, all the people in between would get the useful knowledge sooner, and then um, they would sort of reach the top sooner. So it would actually, I would actually only benefit a, a, a portion of all the future people. Now, it would matter a lot, you know, how, how quickly this S-curve goes. So if... If the S-curve fills up kind of early in human history, uh, and we have a lot to follow, um, then getting there sooner is less valuable. If uh, you know we're going to end right here or something, or end right here, then it's a lot more exciting. Um, so most of the discussion about this issue comes at it from a very different perspective from what I'm thinking. 
So like the normal discussion of this question centers around this like limits to growth and all the subsequent literature following from that. So it's mainly um, these kind of environmental arguments that, that we face resource constraints and in maybe like the coming century or two, depending on who's talking, um, we're going to be in a lot of trouble and it's, we're going to get more into this logistic growth curve regime. That's really not what I'm saying. Like, I'm interested in this very much more distant future. Um, and there's not as much discussion about this. But, I, but I'm not being part of the like Julian, Simon, Paul, Ehrlich debate right now. Um, so why might you think, why might you think, what else could we say about you know, which of these is more realistic? One argument that, and I haven't heard a lot of people talk about this because it's really far out into the future and like people don't talk about that. Um, but I have tried to ask some economists, why do, you, why do you guys, and they don't all think it, but, but I do get a lot of them who think you know, this model on the left. Um, and one thing people have pointed me to is this argument by Paul Romer. Um, and the argument is roughly, hey, we, we found out that you can make this, here's an example of something really useful that we made that helps with superconductors through chemical synth synthesis of these like four elements and no one had like thought about it and it was totally unexpected. And like think of all the combinations that there are of these different elements that we haven't tried and all the like useful things that we could make. And then if you just kind of do some, you know, basic combinatorial mathematics, you get that there's like this crazy number of possible combinations of all these things. So maybe there's just this huge space of possible innovations that we could search through. And maybe that thing is so large that, uh, you know, we're going to be on the left curve rather than the right curve for as long as we exist. Um, and... I think like we could even steel, steel man that a bit further, um, you know, rather than just searching for chemical compounds. There's just so many ideas out there, and they, you know, many I new ideas that we come up with are found by combining existing ideas in some novel way, and they do something interesting and useful. And there's just a crazy number of them. Um, so, uh, just a couple things. The thing I find. The thing I object to most about this argument, I think it totally does show that there's an enormous number of possible innovations that we could never search them all. Um, I think it doesn't show that all those innovations are useful. Um, so I think that's the, the key issue with this. So um, if, if they had an argument like that, that they were going to all be useful, then I think you'd really be in business. Um, but... I think we have a sort of argument by reductio that you're not going to keep getting useful innovations for that long of a period of time. Um, so here's an argument by Robin Hansen. He's um, an economist that's a research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute. Um, he says, like, let's just calculate it out, okay? So today we have about 10 billion people with an average income about 20 times subsistence level, and the world economy doubles roughly every 15 years. If that growth rate continued for 10,000 years, the total growth factor would be 10 to the 200, which is a really enormous number. Like reference, there's like 10 to the 80th atoms in the observable universe. Um, so there are roughly 10 to the 57 atoms in our solar system, about 10 to the 70 in our galaxy, and that holds most of the mass within a million light years. 
So if we had access to all the matter within a million light years, um, in order to grow by a factor of 10 to the 200, each atom would on average have to support an economy equivalent to 10 to the 140th people at today's standard of living, or one person with a standard of living 10 to the 140th times higher, or some mix of these. Uh, so I think that um, this is just unrealistic. Uh, and <laughs> instead, we're going to have something that looks more like uh, the logistic growth uh, on that kind of time scale. So I think we are more in the situation where uh, the, we're going to sort of, uh, if, 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 if growth rates don't slow down too soon, we're, gonna, we're going to kind of run out of these useful innovations much, much sooner um, than these types of time scales that civilization could last on. Just, just as a quick, yeah. it's worth pointing out, I think, that the two curves look exactly the same at the beginning. That's right, yeah. So we can't tell based where, yeah, the, 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 the logistic curve looks exponential um, for a long time. So, um, all right, so if that was like too complicated, let me just like try to give you a simple analogy. Say I'm like filling up the swimming pool, okay? And I've got, I want to fill it up for the summer. What I really care about is that my pool stays full all summer long and that the water in my pool stays nice. Um, what I don't really care about is how quickly my pool gets filled up or whether the water is nice while it's filling up. Um, now, there could be, I might like care about those things for like indirect reasons. Maybe I think if I don't fill up my pool quickly, I'll get in trouble and somebody will shut it down or something like that. Um, that then I might want to fill up my pool quickly. But just getting it filled up sooner, not a big deal. Um, so the analogy is, if, if you think... If you think, as I do, that the long-term growth curve follows something more like that S-curve, it's kind of like filling up the pool. Getting it going sooner, we're mostly caring about it because of its indirect effects. Now, the pool, pool analogy may suggest to you that I think those indirect effects are not important, but that's actually not right. I think those indirect effects could be very important. Um, but, but it's worth pointing out that we've kind of undermined this original argument that we're adding to this useful stock of knowledge that will be used for like potentially billions of years by all future generations. Okay. Um, so why, why do I think it still could be important? I mean, I think, it, I think this is harder to think about. And it, it, it starts depending on things like grand theories of how societies work, right? Uh, which is like not a place that I love to be. Um, but uh, I do think that... <clears throat> that uh, an argument you could make and people have made and I think has some merit is you might think that we're, coming, we're going through a period of human history that might be less safe than we'll be in uh, when we're much more technologically advanced. So if we live in a world where we, you know, we don't have great controls over nuclear weapons or in the coming generations where we might not have great control over... Uh, future bioweapons and things like that, we might be in a, in a place that's less stable from a global catastrophic risk perspective than we might be in the very long run, especially if you, if you take seriously like ideas like space colonization or something like that. Um, and if we sort of get to that safe point sooner, there's less time that something could go drastically wrong and uh, prevent us from reaching our technological potential. A related argument is, you know, in some sense, we're doing pretty well in terms of having these nice Western institutions that I, that I described earlier. And if you think those things are contingent, um, uh, 
you know, you, you kind of don't want to rock the boat, you know, uh, and uh, those, those things may be contingent on facts about how, about economic prosperity and things like that. Um, they may be kinds of the kinds of things that could decay for various reasons that we don't understand. Um, okay. Um, anyway, I, this is all very speculative. I, I think this is the regime you're in when you're arguing that faster growth affects the long run future. You're, you're going to start talking about things like that, I think. Um, and I think those could be very important. I don't think they're important for the straightforward reason that I described earlier. Okay, um, next thought, global catastrophic risks. So um, there's another view, as I said earlier, where what really matters is avoiding catastrophic events that might screw up our long-term potential. Um, so Nick Bostrom, um, I think, has defended a view like this, though he, has it, though he would phrase it differently and emphasize different factors. There's uh, Seth Baum at the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute uh, has a view that's like this. And I think a lot of people who are interested in the sort of long-run perspective in this effective altruism community have a view like this. Um, and I think it's a view that recalls for various qualifications. So, um, so Nick Bostrom, I said earlier, you know, he defined this concept of existential risk. And, uh, you know, in a recent paper, he says that the loss in expected value resulting from an existential catastrophe is so enormous that the objective of reducing existential risks should be a dominant consideration whenever we act out of an impersonal concern for humankind as a whole. It may be useful to adopt the following rule of thumb for such impersonal action. Uh, maximize the probability of an okay outcome, where an okay outcome is any outcome that avoids an existential catastrophe. So in other words, from this long-run perspective, what matters most is avoiding an existential catastrophe. Now, um, the only objection I really have to this is the word drastic. Uh, so I, I maybe there's a, there's a the, the other objection I have is like, it's not something he actually said, it's in the way that a lot of people think about it. Um, you know, the word catastrophe sort of suggests this like sudden event or something that happens kind of quickly and affects the long-term potential. Using the word risk, I think, does that to some extent too, but it doesn't really mean it. And I don't think Nick Bostrom means it that way. Um, but I believe, as I've said earlier, that some persistent cultural or technological changes um, could have maybe more minor or more large effects on the distant future uh, without being drastic effects on it. And I think um, these types of things should also be on our radar um, in addition to the sort of like catastrophic events. Um, and I think, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying they are more important than existential risk. Um, I don't, I'm saying I don't know whether they're more important, and I don't think we know the answer to that question right now. So I would say that sort of minimizing existential risk is, is kind of incomplete as a description of what it means to care about the distant future. And... Um, and, uh, and perhaps it's been understood by some people in a way that's a bit misleading. Um, so I, here's a quote from Seth Baum saying, according to a range of consequentialist ethics views, reducing global catastrophic risk should be the top priority for society today. Um, and that's obviously a, a wider, that's, that's obviously a narrower claim, and I, so I object to that even more. Um, so yeah, I've gone over some of this already. Um, 
One, I, I think, I think a, a big area of uncertainty with global catastrophic risks right now is uh, just how much we can actually do. I think, I think global catastrophic risks have the nice thing about them that if you have the event be bad enough, uh, it's easiest to see how that could affect all the future generations in comparison with any of the other things that we're talking about. Um, so I, if, 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 if you've got a great shot at changing whether one of these risks happens, uh, it seems really exciting. Um, however, I think we know relatively little about uh, to what extent we can actually reduce these global catastrophic risks. And I think it's possible that we'll discover that there's not a lot we can do about them right now. Um, another issue is we don't know how resilient the world is to global catastrophes. Um, it could be... So we don't know, for example, if an event that happens that kills 10%... Uh, well, we probably know for 10%. We don't know if, we, if an event happens that kills 50% of people or 90% of people or 95% of people, whether that's something civilization eventually comes back from. And from this long-run perspective, what really matters is whether you eventually bounce back from these catastrophic events. Could be that we, we don't bounce back from some of these extreme events, or that there's a risk of not bouncing back. Uh, could be that we do bounce back. I think these, if, if, if we do bounce back, there may not be a lot of things that can uh, really wipe us out. It might be very difficult to do. Um, so I think, I, think um, I kind of want to approach this idea that the global catastrophic risks are dominant in a sort of tentative way. Um, so I've now gone through pretty much everything I wanted to say. I want to try to wrap up a little bit and solidify what I've said, and then we can go into questions. Um, I've argued that civilization has a reasonable chance of lasting for a very long time, becoming very large, and becoming techno technologically very advanced. I've argued that some actions we, could, we can take today would have non-negligible expected, expected consequences for that future. And I've argued that if those things are true, then what matters most about uh, how we spend our efforts is how they affect the long-run potential of civilization. Um, so I think, uh, I think that's a conclusion that, we, that has some plausibility in light of this. And you know, I hope, hope you agree. And you know, if you don't, I hope you kind of you know, think about it a little bit more, tell me why I'm wrong, or go and research it. Um, now, I've, uh, I've discussed the, these two perspectives on how we can best affect the long-run future. We had this growth idea, we had this catastrophic risk idea. I said that uh, faster growth or accumulating useful knowledge for society uh, is not something that is as straightforward as you might think at first as a lever for affecting the distant future. Um, it's a lever that may still be important for other reasons. Uh, it may be that through indirect effects on some of the other levers that we discussed earlier, uh, it may be good for the distant future in a way that is more important from this kind of perspective. Um, although I should mention that there's like debate about that. It's, you, you will find some people who think, especially in certain areas, that uh, speeding up the, the growth of useful knowledge may be a, may be a dangerous thing. So, for example, if, you, if you're worried about these uh, future bioweapons or something like that, and we're speeding up the development of our understanding of how to make them, uh, that, may be, that may be bad instead of good. Um, but 
I, I'm more on the positive side of that argument, but I, I think it's very complex. Um, and I think these are direct effects that we might be having. We really don't understand them, and we really, really don't understand how big they are. Um, for global catastrophic risk, this has the clearest connection with how we could affect very long-run outcomes for civilization. And because of that, it's very exciting from this perspective. Big question is tractability. And uh, that's something we may hope to learn more about in the future. Um, but I think, you know, I, I just want to be cautious in saying that this is where all the action is. I think that may turn out to be true. And, you know, as more research comes in, I may be, you know, become more convinced of that idea. Um, so I think where that leaves us is that it's a really interesting question whether we can reduce these global catastrophic risks um, and whether they are the kinds of things, which ones might affect our long-term future. Um, those are very hard questions, but I think they might be questions that uh, we could answer um, with additional investigation. So I think that, that makes, the, that, makes a, that a very exciting thing to do. If there are questions we can't answer, um, it may be great anyway to just give it a shot. And, you know, if they are things that we can affect, then you might really uh, do a great job at uh, changing the long, run the long run future for the better. Um, I think this growth view is a lot less straightforward than I said at first. Um, I think that some of these other routes to changing the distant future are, are worthy of additional investigation. Um, and... You know, the way that we can affect them indirectly through a lot of things that we do in the world is a, is a potentially quite interesting thing. And um, I think just a, a last thought is that when I first started thinking about these issues, I thought it was more likely that uh, as I thought about them, they would help me zoom in on a kind of small range of potential causes that I could throw myself at or encourage others to go into that would be unusually helpful from an effective altruist perspective. And uh, I think it's become more complex than I thought, and I've kind of been expanding the range of things that I think are plausible candidates for affecting the distant future. So um, it's been, it's been a, a helpful lens in some ways, and I think there are things that it's kind of ruled out or made less important that I haven't really talked about in this talk. But I also think it's sort of, it's sort of been less, less helpful um, than I had hoped it would be. But anyway, those are my thoughts. Thank you.